Each year, the Grateful Dead Scholars Caucus takes place in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It's part of the Southwest American Pop Culture Association, which was celebrating its 40th anniversary. The event took place at the Hyatt Hotel. So one room had panels dedicated to hip-hop music. Another room hosted discussions on Harry Potter. Some rooms discussed films. Now, on the 19th floor, a conference room, which overlooked downtown Albuquerque and the scenic New Mexico landscapes, that was the location for the 22nd Grateful Dead Scholars Caucus. I have been involved in that since 1999. That's Barry Barnes, who was attending this year's caucus for his 20th year. Early on, Barnes was the chair for the event, and he describes the event perfectly. Well, you know what? It's a lot like a Great for Dead concert without all the pesky music. So for four days, 14 sessions take place. Each session lasts about two and a half hours. The average day starts at 9 o'clock in the morning, and the final panel of the day ends around 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Panel members came from all over the states. Uh, Randolph Jordan, he came from Canada to explore multi-channel indiscretion and the original sound mix on the Grateful Dead movie. Okay, so as I mentioned, the front, left, and right channels uh, carry the music, essentially the same as in the performance footage, through to the merch tables. But then notice how it drops off almost entirely once we move backstage. The speakers in the Sierra Vista conference room got a workout over those couple days for many of the sessions. Uh, Michael Crowley, he showcased some psychedelic classical music. piece to show how it could have possibly inspired the dead for this particular jam on June 28, 1974 in Boston. Gantry kept the music pumping with his talk titled Just Right, talking about Grateful Dead music. Brian Felix, he really threw out many audio examples of the tempo from the band's first album and compared the same songs to recordings done later in the band's career. There was a rumor that Grateful Dead's first album was sped up because the members were taking diet pills. Garcia initially noted that the record was honest. It sounds just like us. It even has mistakes on it, but it also has a certain amount of excitement on it. It sounds like we felt good when we were making it. It sounds like one of our good sets. He later revised his assessment. Uh, at that time, we had no real record consciousness. We were completely naive about it, so we went down there and what? What was we? We had Dexamil, some sort of diet watcher speed, and pot and stuff like that. So in three nights, we played some hyperactive music. That's what's embarrassing about that record now. The tempo was way too fast. Inter interestingly, when compared with representative live recordings from 1966 and 1967, the renditions on The Grateful Dead are not substantially quicker in tempo than comparison versions. 
Matthew Armstrong busted out the guitar to put music to Eagle Mall Suite. Lyrics, which were written by Robert Hunter, who pitched the song to Garcia, but Jerry turned it down. So Armstrong took the challenge to come up with his original music and put it to Hunter's lyrics. Time to walk around the way. Also got to mention a big thanks to Matthew Armstrong for uh, letting me share a cab ride back to the airport. Now, it wasn't all about listening to hardcore tunes and getting down to good vibes. For instance, Arthur Kaufman pointed out connections between dead lyrics and Shakespeare. My remarks are largely devoted to the song Althea. My more particular contention is that the Shakespearean content of this song not only allowed Hunter and Garcia to explore deeper reaches of the lyrics, thematic mixture of love, fate, and time, but also to consider complexities of the band's own identity during a transitional period in their career. Now, nobody even pushed play on Bob Weir's flop of an album, Heaven Help the Fool, even during Rich Wallach's reappraisal of the album. Initially dismissed by critics and deadheads alike as slick, soulless, L.A. sounding, she argues the passage of time has somewhat mitigated that assessment, but not by very much. Now, some sessions requested that recordings of any sort didn't take place. For instance, when Owsley Foundation played never-before-released tracks from Bear's Vault. The recordings ranged from early studio sessions to recordings at Acid Trips and newly restored tapes from legendary Dead shows. However, the music did get loud and easily invited members to get down to the tunes when we gathered for the caucus's first-ever late-night listening session. Mike Dolgushkin, who is a co-author of Dead Bass, he amped up the excitement with his commentary on the evening's entertainment. What we're about to hear is the second set of 10, 16, 89, and you'll see, you'll hear for yourself what happened. Another co-author of Dead Bass, Stu Nixon, he's been uh, featured for the program on deadairradio.org. You can also listen to his previous interview over at the website, deadairradio.org. Now, another good friend of the program, Barry Barnes, who we talked with on the phone, along with his co-author, Bob Trudeau, about their book, Grateful Dead's 100 Essential Songs. Barnes also wrote the book, Everything I Know About Business I Learned from the Grateful Dead. Barnes added another chapter about how the Grateful dead are still a hot item on the marketplace. The purpose of a business is to create and keep a customer. Did the Grateful Dead do that? (laughs) Still doing it, right? Amazing. On the final day of festivities, Barnes received an award for Lifetime Member of the Caucus. The presenter of the award was the current chair of the caucus, Nicholas Merriweather, who later that day announced the Grateful Dead Caucus is planning on becoming a 501c nonprofit organization, which includes plans for a website, newsletters, and other features to connect scholarly efforts in the field of the Grateful Dead.